always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Talk to our dedicated Switch Squad or search Sky Broadband to get started. Last week, the BBC aired a documentary about British athlete Mo Farah, which featured an astonishing revelation about his past. I've never really spoken about any of these till now. Farah, a multiple gold medal winner who was knighted by Queen Elizabeth, revealed that his real name is not Mo Farah, but Hussein Abdi Kahim. And I was brought into the UK illegally under the name of another child called Mohammed Farah. Farah previously said he came to Britain with his mother as a child, but has now revealed he was trafficked from his home in Somaliland to London, where he was kept away from school and forced to take care of the children of another family. Shower them, cook for them, clean for them. He was just nine years old. And she said, if you ever want to see your family again, don't say anything. It's taken Farah 30 years to tell the truth. But for many other victims of trafficking, those without Farah's fame or profile, stigma and fear of deportation prevents them from doing the same. I'm Sarah Pollock and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, will Mo Farah's story help other victims of human trafficking? Sally Hayden is a reporter and author who covers the African continent for the Irish Times. Sally, you've written a lot about human trafficking and smuggling across the African continent into countries like Libya and onwards into Europe. You've also interviewed people with very similar stories to Mo Farah. So how surprised were you by his revelations? I was obviously surprised by his revelations because he's such a high profile figure And I also think it was quite brave of him to come forward. I know that in the documentary, they're saying some of this might might create more awareness around how trafficking happens. There's a lot of people who both may be victims of trafficking that are too scared to do anything about it to come forward. Or there may be people who have this sort of thing in their background, but because of the hostile environment that's being created, they're they won't speak about it. They just basically have to cover it up. And it's kind of astounding to imagine the mental impact that that might have on you if you're living with that type of secret for your whole life, particularly if it's something that happened as a child, you know, that you weren't even actively involved with yourself in terms mm. of making any Many of those decisions. Many viewers of the doc may have actually been surprised by this woman, this this mother figure who was actually unknown to Mo, but who was able to smuggle him into the country using a false identity. How common is this when it comes to child trafficking across from African countries? Uh, Are there still children being smuggled into European countries in this way? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure about the exact figures regarding children, but I know more than 10,000 trafficking victims were identified in the UK last year. And of course, some of those would be children. It's really important that people understand the difference between trafficking and smuggling. And trafficking is you being transported for purposes of exploitation. So 
uh, someone might be brought across a border and even maybe they they will have technically agreed to travel across that border, but they don't realize that they're going to be forced into servitude once they get to a certain place. Um, and oftentimes those people will not necessarily have control over the documentation that they're using. They might just be told, you know, we've got a job for you in the UK or in Ireland, you can you know, we've arranged your transport, you just come, somebody else often will be holding the documents and we'll just give it to them to go through the particular border point. I mean, there are also smuggling cases where people themselves are trying to get through borders. Um, and in those cases, of course, they might be fleeing war or dictatorships or other situations. And I know also of false documentation being used then, but oftentimes with that person, once they actually reach the country of safety, they will then claim asylum um, and can use their actual name. You know, so you might not even know that they've used. In a false the documentary, Sally Mo spoke about how when he first arrived as a child, he'd lock himself in the bathroom and, and cry, but that after a while he just learned not to have this emotion and get on with the harsh reality of what he was facing. Based on your own work and your interviews. What kind of trauma do people suffer when they are trafficked for work or prostitution into another country? I mean, I think the trauma is extreme and I can't imagine as a child going through something like that. You're separated from your family. You know, you don't know, are they alive or dead? I think there were a lot of questions that he even didn't seem to know himself about the family that had been holding him at the beginning and forcing him to work and Potentially, he wasn't even able to ask those questions um, or was afraid to ask them because maybe he didn't know the answer he was going to get. What was very clear to me watching the interviews with his mother was that um, there is this chaos when you're in a conflict situation and they were in a, you know, they were living in a war zone and the, his father was killed when he was four, he said. And the mother just said that she had sent her children to Djibouti um, which was, you know, which is not so far, but it is obviously separate from where they were living. And at that time, they didn't have phones. They didn't have the same type of communication that we would have now. And so she hadn't realized that he was going to be taken to the UK, but she had lost contact. She had just had to trust people to take care of him because that was the only way to get him to a safe place. But I'd say that he was dealing, first of all, with the trauma of having to flee a war zone. And then secondly, you know, if you've already been put in a situation where you have to trust the people around you because you're fleeing from something that's incredibly dangerous and there's no other way to to get to a safe place, then to realize that those people don't have your best interests at heart, that must be very, you know, very difficult. I had all the contact details for my relative. And once we got to the house, the lady took it off me and right in front of me, ripped them up and put it in the bin. And at that moment, I knew I was in trouble. I don't know that he says this explicitly, but the idea that he would lock himself in one room, that seems to me very clearly that he's trying to create a space that he can just feel safe and secure in. Um, and I've seen that with a lot of people that they're literally just trying to find that one safe space, you know. Um, yeah, and that, for sure. And that can but one thing that became clear throughout the documentary that was that he hid the truth for a long time, including from uh, his girlfriend, who then became his wife. He eventually told her before they got married. But one person he did speak to was his PE teacher. He felt he could trust that man. But 
he then went on hiding the truth until now. He didn't come out in 2012 when he was in the media spotlight. Why do you think people who are trafficked feel they must hide the truth and lie? Um, What is stopping them from telling people what they've gone through? I mean, I think one of the things that we definitely see is the more hostile the immigration policy of a country, the more people will be frightened to speak out. And that is actually one of the tools that traffickers use, that they will say, you know, if you report this, you're going to be deported. Or if you report this, you know, your family. So a lot of people, not in his case, because he was a child, but like a lot of people who are trafficked at an older age, they will have been told that they actually have like a huge debt to repay. And that's part of the way that they're exploited, that they're told, you know, we have now brought you from this place to this place and you must repay your debt. And that debt is generally a a massive amount. And they're told you will work until that debt is repaid. And so in in a lot of cases, the traffickers will have contact with the families back home. And so that person is understanding that the family is going to be the one who is hassled or forced to pay something or potentially threatened if they don't keep working to make sure that that money is repaid. And, you know, that money will, the amount will keep rising. It won't be that they're just paying the cost of their flight or whatever. It it will be like an insurmountable sum. Um, and if you have a hostile environment, you have a situation where somebody could have been exploited for years potentially, but they, re- they feel that if they go to the authorities, the basically the first thing will happen is they'll get deported. And so that debt will still have to be paid. Their family will still be threatened. They'll be back in a country where potentially they could be trafficked again um, because they might feel like they have no other option, you know. And so they won't want to come forward and to report that. And we have seen that in the UK. I mean, I, I've reported a bit on trafficking in the UK and interviewed trafficking victims where they are terrified that they're going to be deported um, for reporting. And yeah, I mean, it's a sad irony because we saw under Theresa May, for example, when she was Home Secretary, she really spoke a lot about modern slavery and the dangers of modern slavery. But her critics would say that she was using that as a way to create a more hostile immigration policy rather than actually you know, supporting victims. On the repercussions of of speaking out, this is something that was addressed in the documentary because Mo Farah and his wife go to visit um, lawyers to speak about what's going to happen when this documentary comes out and what's going to happen to his citizenship and would there be implications for his wife and children. That was very stark that you could see that someone who had spent the best part of their, well, their entire adult life and a lot of their childhood in this country, someone who considers themselves British, could have that stripped in a moment. Now, Mo Farah is a very famous man and it looks like it's not going to happen to him. But I'd imagine someone who's not famous, who doesn't have the support of the general public, they could be facing a very different situation if they spoke out. Yeah, exactly. And that's what keeps people frightened, you know, and like the system in the UK is so hostile towards immigration. You know, we have these things happening, like the discussion over sending asylum seekers to Rwanda, which are, you know, in the media every single day. And so if you have somebody who doesn't necessarily fully understand the rules of the country and they're hearing something like that reported on the media, they're not going to go out and tell you that actually, you know, they were trafficked here and, you know, and and that's 
kind of some of the sad irony is that actually if you did have those victims that were able to come forward and could give details on how they were brought to the country and, you know, who was responsible and potentially that would lead to more convictions, um, you could have some of these rings probably dismantled, you know, in, in a in a law, you know, by law enforcement. But instead, those people are the ones who profit off this system of hostile, this hostile environment, basically, because traffickers will find a way to exploit systems where people are very vulnerable. And, you know, the, I guess the way to counter that is to give give more support. What do you think will be the wider be impact of vulnerable. a massive sports star like Mo Farah speaking publicly about his background? We've referenced already the immigration policies that exist within the UK. It's difficult to see those changing in any way quickly in response to one BBC documentary. But do you think it will create more political interest in this issue and perhaps increase supports for victims of trafficking? I mean, I think that's mm. a lot to ask, to be honest, particularly given the current climate here. And, you know, we've seen now the conservative leadership race. It seems like all of the candidates are still for quite a harsh immigration mm. policy. Um, so I don't necessarily think so, but I wonder would it have a big impact on people who are trafficking victims who might come across this or have that in their background, even if it's not regarding policy even if it's how they feel about themselves you know and that again they said that in the documentary there was one woman speaking to him I forget what it was her role but she was saying you know a lot of people blame themselves because they think I made that one decision that has led to this thing and in a lot of trafficking cases his is slightly different but because he was so young, but in a lot of trafficking cases, a person actually will consent to traveling, for example, or they will consent to a certain amount of what happens to them. And they don't realize that, you know, once they get to that place that actually, you know, they might not be uh, working as a waitress, they might be working as a sex worker, or they might be um, forced to work as a domestic servant, you know, 20 hours a day, have nowhere to sleep, like be constantly abused or beaten up. But for them, they will be thinking, well, I did agree to start that journey. And therefore, this is my fault for getting myself into this situation. Um, and that's, you know, I, I hope that people can find a bit of acceptance in themselves that just because you consent to one part of that sort of trip it doesn't mean that you're consenting to everything that comes with it you know I interviewed one woman who left Nigeria and she said she was one of I think four children or more and she was the eldest and wanted to support the rest of her family and they had basically supported her mm -hmm. to go and make this journey and she then ended up being uh you know raped or forced to have sex um with men and was basically, you know, still thinking, should I keep going because I want to help my family and, you know, they don't have anything else. And if I go back, I'll be in debt and uh, they'll have to pay money and we can't afford to do that. And, you know, it's going to be so upsetting for them. And there's all these ways that people can be controlled. You know, a lot of it is um, about, you know, thinking about the impacts on the other people close to them. It would be great to see more support for victims, more support for vulnerable people. Um, but I Sally, what about the perpetrators of 
trafficking and the people smugglers behind these networks. You've written extensively about the notorious Eritrean human trafficker and smuggler Kidane Zakarias Habtamariam, and you covered his trial in Addis Ababa last year, which we also spoke to you about on the podcast. But you were the only international journalist who covered that trial of a man who was responsible for trafficking thousands of human beings. Um, why is there so little interest in the people who actually run these international trafficking rings? I don't know that there's totally no interest. Like I'd like to think that there are things that law enforcement are doing to try and tackle them. But I think like a lot of the rhetoric around trafficking and smuggling does focus on punishing vulnerable people. Even this uh, Rwanda policy, the idea that people will be sent to Rwanda, that's, you know, those are the most vulnerable people who will be sent to Rwanda. But the justification that the British government is giving is that they want to break the business model of traffickers. But I mean, I I always question, like having reported on trafficking trials where there was exactly like you said, no, no international interest. I always question why they don't just go after the actual traffickers, you know, that would you know, that would obviously like break the business, break the models much more effectively because those people would be in prison. I would like to see that question asked more like who are the actual top people um, involved in this and um, why aren't they being, you know, targeted or why aren't uh, victims being encouraged to give information about them rather than that the victims are being, you know, frightened Sally into Hayden, not thanks, speaking as always, about for anything. Time Coming up, Thank you so much. I speak to the barrister who won Ireland's first court conviction against human traffickers. Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa, gaming in the bedroom, or swiping in the bathroom. I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. According to the Global Slavery Index, there are an estimated 8,000 victims of trafficking in Ireland. However, between 2015 and 2020, Irish authorities only identified 356 suspected victims, meaning that thousands more are left unidentified and their traffickers unpunished. Fiona Murphy is a senior counsel who led the prosecution case for Ireland's first ever human trafficking conviction last year. But before we hear about that particular case, Fiona, can you explain what does it take to bring a conviction against traffickers? So the offence of human trafficking is an offence that involves three separate ingredients. And as a prosecutor, um, you are going through the investigation file. And I suppose as an investigator, members of Angarda Shikana as well, efforts are made to ensure that you can prove each of these ingredients to the appropriate standard for criminal prosecution. So the first ingredient is that the person has been trafficked. The second ingredient is that they've been trafficked for the purpose of exploitation. And the third ingredient is that there has been some kind of deceit 
deceit or fraud or some kind of coercion um, put in place or a vulnerable person is being taken advantage of to such an extent that they actually have no acceptable alternative but to succumb um, to the will of the person who has trafficked them. Insofar as that last ingredient is concerned, that doesn't need to be proven in relation to a child because, I mean, I, I think the reasoning is probably clear. A child is automatically vulnerable. They're not in a position to do otherwise than they are, are coerced into doing. So that is an ingredient that doesn't need to be proven. So once a child is in a position to show that they have been trafficked, and as I say, the definition of trafficking is wide and varied, and that they have been exploited in some way, and the exploitation can be sexual exploitation, labour exploitation, and forced to engage in criminality, any of those things, um, that is sufficient to prove a case in relation to child trafficking. Anyone who saw the MoFire documentary on the BBC will have seen how he was forced into domestic labour through being trafficked to the UK. And we hear a lot about um, prostitution when it comes to trafficking as well. But what other types of trafficking have you come across in your work which have appeared uh, here in Ireland? I would know anecdotally there are people who make complaints of trafficking in circumstances where, in effect, they're being uh, trafficked for the purposes of organ exploitation, so that the removal of one of more of their organs, or for the purposes of surrogacy. I'm aware of um, accounts being given in relation to that. In September last year, two women became the first people in Ireland to be convicted of human trafficking. They were both sentenced to five years for running a prostitution ring from a base in Westmeath and for trafficking women from Nigeria. Four young women from deprived backgrounds in Nigeria had come to Ireland on the promise of a better life, but they ended up being used in what was a harrowing ordeal. They were forced into prostitution, travelling to towns across Ireland. The trafficking in relation to the victims in the case in Mullingar, that trafficking was prosecuted on the basis that they were people who were moved around the state for the purposes of exploitation, sexual exploitation in circumstances where they were so vulnerable that they had no option but to uh, exceed or accept or succumb to this exploitation or to their treatment by the trafficker. So while they did travel here from Nigeria and the prosecution case was they travelled expecting a different form of employment they were then put in a position because of their vulnerability, because they were in the country with really no connections and nobody to go to. They were then exploited sexually by the traffickers. But the actual trafficking offence was the moving them around the country for the purposes of sexual exploitation. In statements to the court today, they spoke of the effects. One of the victims said, I tried to kill myself. I lost my pride as a woman. I feel ashamed. It's not the way I wanted to live. Another, the wounds inflicted on me will never go away. I was scared all the time and I still feel scared today. One of the things that we did do in the Mullingar case was we called an expert in human slavery or human trafficking to give an account of the the ways in which people come from Nigeria to here and the manner in which people are exploited because in that case there was each of the victims had undergone a juju ritual before they travelled and it was an important part of the case to show that that was their vulnerability, that they were genuinely afraid that something terrible would happen to them if they didn't do what they were asked to do once they came to Ireland. So that's the cultural aspect when you're dealing with people who come from different jurisdictions that can come into play when you're dealing with their vulnerability. 
Today, Judge Francis Comerford said the two women had coerced the victims into a sustained and degrading period of prostitution, which did great harm to all victims for financial gain. I don't think there's any doubt but that um, all legal professionals and indeed members of Angarda Shikona would be aware that trafficking is an issue. What is becoming more and more readily understood in recent years is the extent to which trafficking is covered by various types of behaviour. And more than that, significant um, efforts are being put in place so that red flags can go up to identify um, people who could potentially be trafficked or trafficked persons. And that is something that extends to all areas of society and efforts are being made by Angarda Shikona to link in with various different, I suppose, institutions like hospitals or workplaces or things like that. That's all for today. My thanks again to our guests, Fiona Murphy and Sally Hayden. And shortly after we spoke to Sally for this episode, she was awarded the 2022 Orwell Prize for Political Writing for her book, My Fourth Time We Drowned, Seeking Refuge on the World's Deadliest Migration Route. Congratulations, Sally. We spoke to her on this podcast back in April about her book, which investigates the migrant crisis across North Africa and into Europe, and also reveals Libya's shocking system of incarceration and abuse. You can listen back to Sally's interview and also a whole back catalogue of other In The News episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you normally get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Declan Conlon and Suzanne Brennan. In the news, we'll be back on Wednesday.